Well, we're in the middle of a series called You Asked For It, three weeks where you have written in questions and then voted on the questions that you want uh, to see answered. And last week, we um, had a question that was a lot of fun, talking about the reality of the um, kind of divided nature of our nation and how can, what is the path towards community. And that was a lot of fun unpacking God's word in that way. And, uh, if you're new with us today, we really are designing this series because we just want to acknowledge sometimes that as uh, the local church and, and church in history, sometimes we can be answering questions that people are asking. So we want to do our best as a community of faith to, to be in tune with and aware of the things that you're asking, the questions that you're talking about, the barriers to faith that you might have. And so today I'm going to be talking about the second question that was the highest polled uh, question that we had, the one that was voted on the most, and it's this question. When you have a hard decision to make, how do you know which one God wants. Hopefully that hits you right between the eyes. That's something that you process and think about from time to time. When you have a hard decision to make, how do you know which one God wants? And the reason why we probably have this question in our hearts and minds is because of this number right here, 35,000. Social research and um, psychological research shows that the human brain makes about 35,000 decisions a day. We think that's a lot of decisions. In fact, some research shows that you make 200 decisions a day simply surrounding food, all right? Just food alone, right? Should I upsize it? Should I not? Should I get the diet coat and the upsize the fries, or is it really no purpose in doing it anyway? Just give me all of the goodies, right? Like those are a lot of questions that we walk through and talk through. And so our life is filled with questions, and there's actually a word that's described for what happens because we have so many decisions to make. More decisions than we've ever had to make in life. For example, your closet is about four or five times the size of a closet in the 1950s or 60s. The, the fact that you walked into a closet this morning and had to make a decision on what to wear and tried on those jeans and took off those jeans and put on those shoes and then took off those shoes and decided, well, i got to stop eating the way that I eat so I can fit in these jeans. All of those decisions that you had to work through even in the course of this morning are evidence of the fact that we make a lot of choices. And so researchers call this decision fatigue, that what ends up happening is because we're making so many choices during the course of the day, by the end of the day, or even by the middle of the day, or by the end of the week, we are just done and tired. Ever been there before? Hey, what do you want to eat, honey? I don't know. You just decide, right? Because we get so tired of making decisions. This was especially made clear when some researchers did a study on chocolate. So they had a group of people who had six options for chocolate, and then a group of people that had 30 options for chocolate. And they asked folks this question, would you pick the kind of chocolate that you want? And the group that was in the group of only six options of chocolate, they found that those people picked chocolate faster and enjoyed the chocolate more. The people that had 30 options of chocolate took a longer time to decide which chocolate to pick. In fact, some of the people even struggled to even make a decision about whether or not they wanted chocolate at all. And then, wait, which is crazy, right? Because you always want chocolate. And then when they picked a, a chocolate and, and decided to eat it, the measurements have shown that their enjoyment of the chocolate was less than the people that had six options. Dr. Barry Schwartz talks about this in his book, The Paradox of Choice. The Paradox of Choice. And, and I'm going to lean a lot on social research today because uh, I know that some of us are not followers of Jesus. Some of us are skeptics, perhaps. And maybe the Bible, the Bible isn't a starting point for you. So what I want to do is just show you, especially if you're a Christian, this is important too, that the, the things that the Bible talks about are the things that research has found out later to be true. 
Uh, the, the scriptures, even though they're old and seem like uh, they're rooted in history, the wisdom that comes out of them is actually what science is proving to be true even to this day. So Barry, Barry Schwartz is kind of the father of choice and looking at decision making. Has some great TED Talks out there if you're interested in that kind of thing. But in his book, The Paradox of Choice, he says this. He says, the existence of multiple alternatives makes it easy for us to imagine alternatives that don't exist. Alternatives that combine the attractive features of the ones that do exist. And to the extent that we engage our imaginations in this way, we will be even less satisfied with the alternative we end up choosing. So once again, a greater variety of choices actually makes us feel better or worse. What do you think? Worse. Isn't that interesting? Because we live in a day, we live in a culture that, that almost espouses freedom of choice as the greatest value. I want as many options as possible because the more options I have, the happier I'll be. Right? That's why we spend hours and hours and hours on Amazon trying to find the right water bottle instead of just ordering a water bottle. Right? It's why we go to the Cheesecake Factory and the waitress has to come around three or four times before we can make our decision on what kind of cheesecake we want. And the answer is all of them. That is the answer every time. But I need your participation because there are two personality types that Barry Schwartz finds as he does his research. And, and we kind of sit in one of these two categories. And I want you to do your best to just look forward at me and not look at your friend or your spouse as we're talking about these. I want you to own your life and own who you are. But I'm going to read two types of personalities. And I want you to raise your hand uh, if you're the first one and raise your hand if you're the second one. So the first one is maximizers. These people, they research every option. They get all of the information, and they spend a lot of time to make what they call the best decision. How many of us are maximizers in the room? Good stuff. You're proud of it, right? You're like, yeah, that's right. I do make the best decision. I am right all of the time, right? I read every review before I go to a restaurant. That, that's the maximizers, right? Then we have the satisficers, okay? These people spend less time choosing, and they settle for the choice that is good enough and just gets the job done. How many of us are those people? Great, good, awesome. My assumption is you are married to the opposite if you're married, right? Like there's, there's this reality that exists in that regard a lot of the time. So there are maximizers and then there are satisficers. And, and knowing your personality is really hope, helpful in this regard because it, it affects the way that you think about choices. Some of us have to have all of the information and we must make the best decision. And some of us are like, whatever gets the job done, I'll be just fine with that. Barry Schwartz values that the people that are happiest in the world are the people that are satisficers. People that don't worry about all of the potential options. They don't live with the constant prospect of FOMO, which the young people use to describe fear of missing out. FOMO, fear of missing out. These people aren't the people who wait till the last minute to decide what they're going to do on Friday. They respond to you when you text them, hey, do you want to hang out? Because they're not waiting on a better option. These people, satisficers, are people that end up having a better life, a higher quality of life. And the reality is we see this especially in our modern day when it comes to modern relationships, modern romance. Now I'm going to pull some uh, psychological and uh, research from uh, a comedian who I don't recommend you listen to and who I don't recommend that you, you watch his, um, his pieces, but he's incredibly sharp. And uh, in a book called Modern Romance, Aziz Ansari actually hired some Duke level and some other um, Ivy League level social researchers and anthropologists to study the nature of, of relationship and romance in the 21st century. He's, he's a single guy trying to figure this thing out and he thought, let me look at science and, and help understand why is it that my generation is so frustrated when it comes to finding relationships, keeping relationships, and staying in relationships. And this is a quote from his book that I think perfectly uh, encapsulates what we're talking about today uh, and, and, and gives us one example when it comes to relationships. He said a century ago, people would find a decent person who lived in their neighborhood. 
Their families would meet, and after they decided neither party seemed like a murderer, uh, the couple would get married and have a kid, all by the time they were 22. Today, people spend years of their lives on a quest to find the quote-unquote perfect person, or quote-unquote a soul mate. Ever heard those words before? Our romantic options, listen in, are unprecedented, and our tools to sort. He's talking about Facebook and Tinder and all of these other dating applications, Match.com, ChristianMingle.com, ChristianPersonWithAHorse.com, like all of these different pieces, right? To sort and communicate with them are staggering, and that raises the question, why are so many people frustrated? People get married later in their lives than ever before. People are more frustrated in their relationships than ever before. People are divorcing more than ever before. And I think a major reason why that's the case is because you've got a thousand different options in your pocket at any single time. And Barry Schwartz takes this idea and he says, when you have all of those options and you can put them together, your imagination begins to run wild and you begin to believe that there is a perfect person out there in mental note, if there was a perfect person, they're probably not dating you, right? But that, that's the, the fact of the matter. This is the struggle we feel. And if it's not in relationships, it's in shopping when we think about Christmas gifts, right? You see, you just go to Macy's and you buy what's there. Now you've got all of these different options. It can be in our jobs. It used to be you worked a job for a long time. The average millennial changes jobs about 15 times a time before the time that they're 36. This is the first time in history we've seen that kind of turn when it comes to different occupations and vocations. We are people that have the most options for choice and as a result the most depressed people in the history of human humanity. This is the reality. We live in a world with more freedom of choice than ever before. And yet, we are more paralyzed by indecision and depression than ever before. Isn't that interesting? We have more options than we've ever had, yet we are more paralyzed by indecision than we've ever been, more depressed than we've ever been. Which is the decision dilemma, isn't it? The decisions are harder to make because we have more decisions to make and more ways to analyze those decisions. So the reason why this question is so important to you, the reason why this question was probably the most highly voted is because this is our reality and the day that we're living in. And to compound problems and to make it even worse is that we live in the era of the Disney film. And this is what I call the lie we buy. Okay? There's a lie that we buy as people in American culture that really gets in the way when we take all of this idea of freedom of choice and our imagination and our desire for not wanting to miss out. Because we begin to say, how do we filter all of these decisions we've got? There's got to be an easy way. What is the silver bullet? And Disney gives us the answer, right? It's found in the story of Pocahontas. Pocahontas is, uh, is living with her father. Her father gives her explicit instructions on what she ought to do, and yet she just follows the whisper of the wind, right? The Little Mermaid, right? Her dad tells her, do not leave the ocean. And what does she do? She follows her heart and leaves the ocean. Moana, yeah, I'm going there, people. Even Moana, right? The sea is calling her name. This is the lie that we find. This is the thing that we've just consumed as culture, and it's more ingrained in you than you probably realize. And I'm seeing it as a dad as I'm parenting my kids now and seeing the narratives that are coming into their lives. Here's the lie that we buy. Just follow your heart. Right? With all of these decisions that we've got to make, when it comes to the person that you're supposed to marry, when it comes to the job that you're supposed to take, when it comes to the way that you're supposed to spend your money, when it comes to uh, the opportunities that you're supposed to uh, own, just follow your heart because your heart will never lead you astray. Right? Well, here's the thing. 
Daniel Kahneman's a social researcher. This is not even the scriptures yet. He's a social researcher. And he says that that is one of the biggest mistakes you can possibly make in your life. Dr. Christine Medici says the exact same thing. She says this. When we let feelings dictate our decisions, we act on primal urgings without benefit of higher cortical input. Here's what she's saying. When you allow your emotions to drive your decision making, oftentimes the greatest regrets you've had in life is because you allowed your emotions and not your intellect to drive your choices. Like, let's be honest, some of the greatest regrets we've ever made is because we followed our heart, isn't it? Like, the reason why you bought that timeshare is because you were following your heart, right? <laughs> the reason why you spent that money, it was only for, you know, a couple uh, payments of $99.99, right? You thought you were going to get a six-pack if you just bought that thing, that you wrap around your stomach, and it goes, bum 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 right? And your emotions led you to make that decision. Our greatest regrets in life, that, hopefully that is your greatest regret, but our greatest regrets <laughs> in life usually have to do with the fact that we followed our heart because our heart, as Jeremiah tells us, is deceitful beyond measure. Matthew 15, 19 says this, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Some of the worst things we've ever done is because we responded out of our heart. Some of the meanest and harshest things we've ever said to our kids is because we responded out of our heart. Some of the meanest things we've said to our roommate, the things we wish we could take back is because we re responded within the moment, allowing our heart to be the thing that leads us. Jeremiah describes it so perfectly when he says, the heart is deceitful, meaning it lies to you. The heart is deceitful above all things. And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's what social research shows us. That the very fact is, we trust just our heart, our first emotional response. That actually leads us into some of the most dangerous places and regretful decisions we'll ever make. And it's directly opposite than the story that we see in culture today. The narrative that so many of our kids are growing up with and that we grew up with to follow your heart seems like a silver bullet, but it ends up shooting you in the foot. Another social researcher says this, we think, each of us, that we're much more rational than we are. Anybody think I'm totally rational? Huh? And we think that we make our decisions because we have good reasons to make them. Even when it's the other way around, we believe in the reasons because we've already made the decision. So here's what he's saying. The reason why oftentimes we stand firmly in the position that we're in is because we've already decided in our heart that that's what the truth has to be, even when the evidence shows us something directly opposite, right? That's why you've been in an argument before and you knew that you were wrong and you kept on arguing your point. Because there's something inside of us that, that wants to make emotional decisions and then use logical rationale to make up for the emotional decision. You're not as rational as you think you are. In fact, you're not a thinking person first. You're a feeling person first whose thoughts follow. We are feeling people. And so it lives and creates this tension for us because we live in a day and an age where there are more decisions to make than ever before. We're paralyzed with the amount of decisions we have to make. We have this social pressure on us to make sure that every decision we make is the best decision, the right decision, and the sharpest decision. And then, when we place that or outsource that onto God, it gets really stressful if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're interested in honoring God because then the pressure becomes, oh my goodness, am I going to go to the right college or not? Is this going to impact God's will for my life? What in the world do I do? Have you ever felt that way before? I wonder if my choices. Are the right choices? Does God honor those choices? I, I, I don't know what to do. Maybe, maybe it would be best if I just didn't make a choice at all. The truth is, usually our greatest regrets in life 
or because we followed our heart or trusted in our quote-unquote good. I want to introduce a different idea to you, and if you're a follower of Jesus, this is an expectation for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to simply think about the way that you've been living and ask yourself, is it working the way that you thought it would work? But here's what I would ask you to do today. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 and 15 says this, Joyful is the person who finds wisdom, the one who gains understanding. We're going to talk a lot about wisdom today. For wisdom is more profitable than silver, and her wages are better than gold. Wisdom is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. See, the scriptures tell us, and King Solomon is the guy who writes this. In fact, Proverbs 1 through um, 7 are a series of uh, 10 lectures that the wisest man in the world, man named King Solomon, writes to his sons. There's a series of lectures he's going to teach his sons. And in a series of those lectures, what he says in uh, chapter 3 is this. Joyful is the person who finds wisdom. Listen, the joy that we're looking for, the happiness that we wish we could have, the contentment we desire in life is never going to be found by doing more research. It's not going to be found by just following our heart. Those are two broad sides of the spectrum. That's not the place where we're going to find joy or happiness. The place that we find joy and happiness is when we find wisdom. Godly wisdom. When we take on the perspective of God as it pertains to all of the decisions we're making in our life. And so what I want to do today is leave you with three questions to discern God's heart. And if you're a Christian, these are the questions that really we ought to be making every decision through. The places we live, the places we work, the people that we relate to, the people that we're connecting with, the, the small decisions about where our kids are going to school. And so much of this, so you know, is going to seem like stuff you've heard before, but I want you to just lean in a little bit, because here's what I know, is following our heart is our natural inclination. And we can oftentimes rubber stamp the name of God on decisions we've made that are actually out of our emotion instead of going through the fullness of the process of really allowing God to speak into our life so we can walk with confidence about what he's called us to do. So here are three questions I want to leave before you today. And we're going to leave a lot on Proverbs because Solomon was one of the wisest men or the wisest men that ever lived. But here's the first question that we're going to look at to discern God's heart. What is God saying? Write that down. What is God saying? Every decision we make needs to be run through the filter of first prayer. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, this is Solomon again writing to his sons. He says this, Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean up on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. That word acknowledge is really important in the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word yada, which literally means to know or cohabit. And so what, what Solomon is telling his sons is when you're living your life, when you're making decisions, when you're in your day-to-day -day activities, you need to have a cohabiting relationship with God. God needs to be so inextricably linked to every aspect and nuance of your life that you're able to know that he's with you at every moment and that you're having a conversation with him ongoing. Now, confession, this is really hard for me because I can go hours and sometimes days without even realizing that God is with you. You guys ever been there before? You kind of get so locked in with the work that you're doing, so locked in with the tasks that you need to get done, so locked in with the deadlines that your boss has placed on you, and all of a sudden, even if you're a Christian who's walked with God for a long time, it's really easy for us to click into, I need to get it done mode. Have you been there before? And what can happen in those moments is that we actually make really bad decisions because we've forgotten who the one is that can help us make those decisions. And so we end up snapping at our kids and we think, oh, that's out of character. Well, it's actually who you are when you're not cohabiting with God. 
We end up lying or cheating with our boss, and we end up cutting a corner on that project, and we end up realizing, man, I feel guilty about that. And you think, I, I thought I was a better worker than that, and the reality is you have to go have to with God. But there's the first step is so important for us to understand. In the New Testament, we have the image of the Holy Spirit, God, uh, and three persons, the Holy Spirit, present with us, in us, in dwelling us. The idea of cohabiting is that he literally moves in. But if you're a follower of Jesus, the scripture tells us, and Jesus promises us, that the very presence of God is in us. That we've taken on the mind of Christ, that we have the access to the way that God thinks and feels and believes about certain things. And so many times we jump ahead and make a decision without even first asking God, saying, God, what do you think about this? So maybe that's the step for us today is we need to acknowledge God. Not just God, you exist, but no, 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 God, God, you, you exist. You're here, and you're with me. So I need to make that decision at work. I, I can trust you. I can lean on you a little bit to help me make that choice because you already know what's best. Now, another key piece of this is prayer. What builds our relationship with God, what builds our intimacy with God, is, is the time that we spend in prayer with Him. And some of you might be sitting here today saying, Colin, I believe that, and I feel like I've been trying to acknowledge God, but it doesn't seem like He's answering. Like, it doesn't seem like I'm getting uh, answers from Him. And I've been there before as well. And the scriptures actually talk to us a little bit about the fact that we hinder our prayers. That not God. God doesn't hinder his voice. God doesn't withdraw from us. God doesn't take his presence away from us. But there are things that we can do that create static in our life that makes it difficult for us to hear what God is saying. So I want to give you this list because maybe the reason why you're struggling so much to hear God right now in your personal life isn't because God isn't speaking. It's because you actually set barriers up that are preventing you from hearing him. And I'm going to go through this list here in just a second, and I want you to know that, that these things are, are fairly convicting. Okay? The first one is selfish motives. The scripture tells us if we pray with selfish motives, that, that that creates static in our life. So maybe the reason why you're asking God for that promotion, or you're asking God for that move, or you're asking God for that thing to come to fruition, you might think is a spiritual reason, when in all reality it's because you want something. And God has become your genie that you're rubbing, hoping that he'll give you some of your three wishes. And God does not exist as our genie. God is the creator of the universe. He does not work for us. <laughs> we work for him. Here's the second one, disobedience. Young people, this is really important for us to hear. If you're living a life of active disobedience to your parents, they, they told you and asked you to live within certain boundaries and you've chosen to break those, and you're struggling to connect with God, maybe the reason why you're connecting with God is because you're living a life of disobedience, and God doesn't honor that with clarity of His voice. Unforgiveness. Some of us are harboring unforgiveness in our heart towards that person 20 years ago. Unforgiveness in our heart to somebody who maybe has even passed away, and we have yet to let go of the wrong that they've committed against us. And because of that, it's creating a hindrance in our prayers. This work one I think is especially important for men the scripture tells us in 1 Peter 3, Peter speaks directly to husbands in particular, so husbands pay attention to me. And the scripture says if husbands do not love their wives well, if we don't provide for our wives, if we don't honor our wives, the Lord says that our prayers will not be heard. And so listen, if you're looking at stuff that you shouldn't be looking at on the screen, don't be surprised that you're not hearing God's voice. If you're objectifying women as they walk down the street, don't be surprised if you're not hearing God's voice. If you've been disrespectful to your wife, or you've been overly critical of her, or you haven't built her up, and instead you've broken her down with your words or with your withdrawal, don't be surprised when you're not hearing from God. And I hope, women, this helps you understand how much God values you. That God would say, it is not okay for you to 
be mistreated. And if you are mistreated, he will inter intervene and be your protection. God will not bless those who are not honoring the women that are in their lives. And we got to own that. we got to realize that maybe that's the reason why we're not hearing from God. Unconfessed sin. If we're holding on to the secret sin and hiding things in this box in the corner, thinking that nobody knows about the box, and we just go to the box when we need the box, and we leave the box when we don't want the box, that box is leaking throughout your life. It's affecting your relationships, and it's affecting the way that you relate to God. It's creating shame in your life. And when we don't confess our sin to God, we don't have the opportunity to receive the fullness of the good news, that His grace is sufficient for all of our weakness, even the things we wish no one knew about. And lastly, doubt. James tells us that we pray with doubt, if we pray with a lack of expectation that God can meet us and will meet us, then that hinders our prayers as well. And so the first question that you've got to process and really think about, and I hope this is connecting with you Christians especially, and if you're not a Christian, I hope you're understanding just how important this is for us to have a relationship with God. God desires an intimate, close, cohabitating relationship with you. He moved in through the power of the Holy Spirit, but is the dwelling place of our soul a place that is prepared to host Him? Because if we're not, we won't be able to hear what God is saying. We'll get frustrated at God for something that we've created on our own. Here's the second reality. We'll go to the second one. Not only what has God said, or what is God saying, but what has God said. The beauty of being a follower of Jesus is that we have the scripture, these documents that tell the same story written on multiple continents by multiple authors over thousands of years, all sharing the same story of who Jesus is. That's why David, uh, why David says in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light to my path. Even David, who only at this time has what we would call the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, he's looking at those Old Testament scriptures saying, this is all I've got, but God, these, these, if this was all I had, these serve as a, as a guide that lights the way for me to be able to take next steps. We have to be careful to make sure that we're not getting the majority of our input from what culture says is normative because culture lives on a different wavelength and a different grid. We've got to trust that God's word is actually the foundation for what thriving looks like. And here's what I know. There are times when I have not trusted in God's word and I've done it my own way and I've made some pretty regretful decisions. I have never done what God, I, when I've done what God has called me to do from his word, I've never regretted it. I've never looked at what Scripture says about how I ought to love my wife and regretted that that was the way I loved her. I've never looked at what Scripture says about how to steward my resources and regretted the outcomes of that. But I have looked at culture and looked at what it tells me about credit cards, and I have felt the weight of that. I have looked at culture and seen what it says about how you ought to relate to, to people of the opposite sex, and all of college was regretted with that. And so Scripture is a light that allows us to see the way we ought to step forward. And so many of us need to return back to the Scripture. In the new year, I'm going to lead us through a process where we're going to read through the New Testament and the Old Testament together as a church. I'm excited to do that on a daily basis so that we can allow God's Word to be the thing that forms us and gives us a framework for the way that we live. Uh, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. He says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us what to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every word. Listen to me. God won't share something with you in private that he won't confirm in his word. And so sometimes there's a thing that we hear and we think, is this from God? Should I make this decision? Should I do this thing? 
And if you only stop there, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. You can understand it, right? You ever wonder, is it God's voice or is it my voice? You ever had that? Is that God's voice or is that last night's tofu? Like, I can't tell, right? The beauty is God has given us His Word as a grid by which what He's spoken to us in private, we can see if it's in alignment with what He's already said. Because God isn't going to say something new that He hasn't already said to someone before us. That's the beauty of the canon of the Scriptures. So what is God saying? What has God said? And the third one is so important. What are wise people saying? What are wise people saying? And hear me, this isn't pick one and don't do the others. This is all three are essential if we're to experience the fullness of God's wisdom and knowing what He wants for us. Proverbs 13, 20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get in trouble. I think this verse is so interesting. Because what it's saying, and social research shows this as well, neurological research shows this as well, that who you spend time with becomes like the way that you see the world. That actually, if you, smart, if you spend time with smart people, your neural pathways begin to change. And even if you're not as smart as they are, you begin to become as smart as they are because you're in that setting or environment. That's why, as parents, you care who your kids hang out with, don't you? It matters a ton who your kids hang out with. Why? Because you know that who they're around has an impact on the way they see the world. What's interesting to me is this text says, walk with the wise and become wise. But it doesn't say associate with fools and get foolish, does it? It says associate with fools and what? Get in trouble. Because here's what happens. When we spend our time with foolish people, we get the collateral damage of their foolish decisions. That we become guilty by association. And so this is so important that we have the community around us that's going to help lift up our marriage. Going to help lift us up in the midst of singleness. Help us help lift us up in the midst of trying to achieve that goal. Who you surround yourself with is absolutely important because if all you're doing is holding on to those old friendships that are going to pull you back in the way that you used to think, don't be surprised if you don't start making the wise choices that God would have for you. This is why we say community group is so important. Because you need a group of people that know your life intimately, that can lean in and ask you the hard questions and walk with you on this journey so you can make the decisions that God wants. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. You want to know who a wise person is? It's a wise person who lets other people speak into their life. A wise person is not a lone man on an island who has all the information by himself. A wise man is not a guy who Google researched it all. A wise man is a man. A wise person is a person who constantly has other wise people speaking into their life. Proverbs 15, 31 and 33. I'm just going to run through these because it's important. If you listen to constructive criticism, you will be at home among the wise. If you reject discipline, you only harm yourself. But if you listen to correction, you grow in understanding. Fear of the Lord teaches wisdom. Humility precedes honor. If you want to know if you are doing this well, ask your spouse or ask a close friend, hey, do I receive constructive criticism well? And allow their honest answer to be a grid by which you understand life. Because some of us are not doing this well. Some of us are simply smiling and nodding our head, yes, when people have a hard word to bring us, but we're not allowing it to actually connect with us and engage with us and allow it to perform the way that we see life. The people that allow constructive criticism and seek out constructive criticism, people who go to their boss and say, hey boss, how am I doing at the job? What can I be doing better? Those people are the people who gain in wisdom and who daily begin to make of those 35,000 decisions more and more and more decisions that look like the ones that God wants. So let's talk about the elephant in the room, right? Because we've talked about prayer, scripture, and community. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for any time, maybe you've had that grip before when it comes to making decisions. 
But there's this bigger elephant in the room, I think, that is one that I feel sometimes, and it's part of where I live my life. Like, 90% of our decisions can probably be covered in that, in that span of what we just talked about. But there's this other 10% that keeps us up at night, right? There's this other 10% that we just don't know what to do with. And this is the elephant in the room, right? What if prayer, scripture, and wise people are quiet? You ever thought that before? Like, there's no scripture you could go to that says, make sure that you purchase land on Tavistock Boulevard, right? There's no piece of scripture that says that. There's no piece of scripture that says, make sure that you homeschool your kids, or public school your kids, or private school your kids, even though some of you guys act like they're rich, right? There's no, there's no scripture that says that, right? And so it's in those spaces that it's really difficult for us to understand what is it that we ought to do. But I want to give you a fourth question today that I think helps address that if you apply it to your life, will actually help you. Know that you're walking with the Lord and making the decisions He wants. Right? This is the question that, that I've been using for the last decade of my life. That many wise people that I know, when I ask them, how do you make these decisions that they're using as well? And it's this. What do you think God wants you to do? And then do that. What do you think God wants you to do? That's not your first question, that's your last question. It's after you've prayed and spent time with the Lord. And then you've gone to his scripture and you've consulted his scripture. And then you've talked to wise people and there doesn't seem to be consensus among the wise people as the direction you ought to go. Let's be honest, you need to be honest about who your wise people are. If they're just a bunch of people that tell you yes all of the time, they're not wise people and they're not helping you. But after you've worked through those questions, if there's still a lack of clarity on what to do, this is the question, God, what do you want me to do? What do I think you want me to do? And then you do that. Here's the reason why, because as Christians, we make decisions based upon God's character, not our circumstances. We believe, at our core, that God is three things. That God is always good. That God is always love. And that God is always sovereign. That God is always good, meaning that God is always working out everything for the good of those that are called according to His purpose and to the glory of His name. Which means even if I make a mistake on this one and read it wrong, God is good enough to work it out together for His glory and my good. That God is always love. That He's not a God who's sitting in heaven waiting for you to make the wrong decision so He can be like, aha, gotcha. Like, that's not what He's doing. But His desire is to be close with you. And sometimes He leaves it gray because the reality is He's a good Father who simply wants to say to His kids, what do you want to do? You know, I think about that with my daughters. There are times that when I take Elise right to go get donuts and she gets paralyzed with indecision because there are so many options, right? And my question to my beloved daughter is, honey, what do you want to do? Sometimes a good father just lets his kid make the choice. And God loves you enough that sometimes he's willing to let you do that. And the beauty is we can trust in the fact that God is always sovereign. That God is in control of who's in control. That God's in control of every circumstance or situation that we're in. And that God is so in control that if we think we're doing our best to honor Him and we're walking away that isn't going to honor Him, He will shut the door or redirect our path because He's that good of a God. So as Christians, we trust that if God wants us to make a different decision, He will close the door or change our hearts. This is how I've had to make a lot of decisions in my life. There was no scripture I could run to that determine what college I should go to. I remember, and this is probably something you need to know about me, I remember my college decision being one of the most frightful decisions that I was going to make. It was really unclear to me as to where I should go. Um, 
I was the first person on my mother's side to, to be able to go to college and be able to graduate in a reasonable amount of time. Took my mother 18 years to get her degree. No one else on our family had gotten a degree. So when I was graduating high school, my mom was getting her bachelor's degree. And so when you have generation after generation after generation after generation after generation of people that are working from days of slavery to indentured servitude, servitude um, to abject poverty, and you become the child that everyone in generations have worked for so long to be able to give an education, you carry that weight on your back. That's a weight I had. So I'm evaluating the options that are in front of me. I got into Duke University with a 75% scholarship. And at that time, Duke was one of the top five ranked undergrads in the, in, the, in the States. And everyone in my family wanted me to go to the best place I could get into, right? And there was a weight I had to carry because of all of these generations that had sacrificed so much to place just one child from our family heritage in a position of success. I had a full ride to a school called Rollins College right here around the corner. They gave out one scholarship a year, and I was the guy who got it. So if I didn't go to Duke, I was supposed to go to Rollins because I'd save our family a ton of money, and it would be a good next step and opportunity for me. But I had this sense that God was calling me to the University of and the day that I told my parents that that's where I was going, they wept. And here's what was so difficult about the decision. Is that as I was walking with the Lord, I had a sense that the University of Florida is where I was supposed to go. But there was no scripture I had that could clarify, you know. There's no, there's no scripture like second hesitations that says that the sky is blue and the sun is orange, go gators. Like there's nothing there. I feel like I'm to the wise people in my life, my parents have a different perspective than I did, and I value their opinion more than anything. My pastors had different perspectives. There's no clarity and unity around it. So I remember waking up on May 1st, spending time in prayer with the Lord, making the decision to go to the University of Florida. This is my prayer. And I remember this prayer that day because I prayed it about uh, a few months later on my first day when I got out of my bed and walked down the hallway from my door and stepped out onto um, the main road right there, dropped my phone and saw a bus right over on the first day. Okay, like I, I remember this prayer because I prayed in both places. Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting with my life. I think this is your voice. So I'm going to follow it. But if I'm wrong, would you close the door? Would you show me another way? Because I want what you want. I prayed that prayer before I talked to my parents and I prayed that prayer my first day of school, because I woke up thinking, why in the world are you not at Duke? Because can we be honest? We make decisions and then we regret them internally, but we never tell people we do. And what I want you to hear today is that a lot of the time, our decisions can be answered through just simply looking at what is God saying, what has He said, and what are wise people saying. But in those spaces where it's unclear, this is the beauty we have as followers of Jesus. We can categorically trust in the character. That God is always good, that He's always loved, and He's always sovereign, and He absolutely loves you, and He's for you, and He's with you. One of our elders this week, as we were having this conversation, said this, when you can't see God's hand, trust His heart. If you can't see God's hand, trust His heart. So how do we make decisions that are hard that we want to make sure that we would honor God. How do we make the hard decisions and do what God wants? We've got to live in this spirit of intimate closeness with Him. Through prayer, what is He saying right now? 
We've got to live in close connection and submission to the authority of His Word. What does His Scripture say? And even if I don't like it, what does it say? We've got to live in submission to the spiritual leaders that God has placed in authority around us and over us. What are wise people saying? And if there isn't clarity around all of those things, we can lean on the fact that God is good, God is love, and that God is sovereign. He's for us, not against us. And if our heart's actual desire is to honor Him, He'll close the door, or He'll redirect our heart, or He'll lead us straight. Which really begs this broader question. I think if I had to double-click or dig deeper underneath what we're really talking about when we're talking about, the question that we ask is, is this. Are you willing, are we willing, to trust God's process of prayer, Scripture, and people, even if it means making a different choice than the one you want to? Because that's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Because the choice that God wants isn't always the choice that we want. And we live in a culture that says, follow your heart. But let me tell you, your joy and your happiness will not be found in that. Your joy and your happiness will be found when you choose not to follow your heart, follow Jesus.